Thank you, Andrea. It's a very sweet introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here and to explore this connection between our inner work and our service and action in the world. And it seems we're at a time when it, uh, it's very much needed that we're, I think, very aware of the multiple kinds of crises and the multiple needs that are coming forth uh, from the world. They've been there, many of them getting ready for a long time, but things seem very, uh, very much urgent at this time. And this uh, possibility of responding to the needs of the world using in part the resources of our spiritual practices and the cultivation of qualities like mindfulness, like compassion, like equanimity, like uh, clear seeing into causes and conditions just seems very much needed by the world. Um, And yet, I think for many of us, the connection or the integration of our inner lives and our outer lives is not always so easy. For myself, it's been uh, quite a challenge. And part of what I do in the book is right at the beginning, I tell some of my story of trying to make that connection between inner work and outer work. What I want to do tonight is to uh, maybe take half an hour or so to um, talk about some of the main themes in the book. I want to read maybe two, possibly three times, uh, some short passages from the book and then to have some time together to uh, really explore the themes which I mentioned. And I know some of you, some of you actually, uh, I know, have been reading the book and may actually uh, remember parts of it better than me. It's possible. So to explore together uh, some of these themes for maybe about half an hour and then somewhere a quarter to nine or a little bit before nine, I want to shift and uh, move to, we have a table set out there, and if any of you are so called to buy the book, have it signed or whatever, I will be there and and will sign and talk and so forth for for a while. So that's my uh, plan. And I'll also just say that I have some materials that I brought also on the table out there One is I brought uh, a number of handouts, which you're welcome just to take. One is uh, a reading list related to this theme of integrating inner and outer work. uh, It's a one-sheet, two-sided handout. And there's also, if anyone is interested in being on the mailing list for um, to be notified probably two or three times a year about events Uh, teaching that I'm doing, particularly retreats and different kinds of events, you could sign up. It's primarily an email list. So if you'd like to sign up, there's sheets out there. And I've also brought um, some flyers, uh, which I think have been here at the center for quite some time, uh, related to a two-year training program, which I'm directing, which starts next April. And, And many of you know about this. That's being sponsored by Spirit Rock and also by the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And I'll be having the pleasure of both uh, helping to guide the program and sort of choreographing probably about 10 or 12 different uh, 
teachers, including Joanna Macy and uh, Jack Kornfield and Sylvia Borstein and Larry Yang and Diana Winston. Many of you know many of these people. They've, they've spoken here. Uh, my Vietnamese friend Thich Minh Duc, who teaches a lot in San Jose, uh, and a number of other uh, teachers. And there's a flyer out there for that program as well. And lastly, I think I'll just mention, I have flyers for an event very much in the spirit of the book that's happening in Berkeley on uh, January 19th, I believe, uh, which is an event uh, that has been organized by a person who I think may have spoken here named Joe Bobrow, who's a Zen teacher and a psychologist. And he has um, dedicated a good part of the last year to organizing a program to work with uh, veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. And very much in the spirit of service, not, not so much taking a political stance. I think it's actually open to people, quite open to people from pretty much any part of the spectrum, but really in some ways trying to meet their needs. And so there's a evening event at which uh, Joanna Macy will be there, Sharon Salzberg will be there, and uh, I think a Colonel, uh, um, Colonel, I think uh, Bauer or Dower, I think, is also going to be there from Camp Pendleton. And so it'll be a, for anyone who's interested in being part of that program, it'd probably be a very nice evening to be at. So I just call your attention to those um, events. So I'll start by just reading a little bit from the beginning of the book. And in, at the very beginning of the book, I talk a lot about how, for me, uh, this integration of inner work and outer work, or we can call it spirituality and social change or service or social justice work, has, um, has sometimes been challenging, sometimes difficult, as I know it is maybe for many of you. You know, some of us may, even at this time, may be um, very called to spiritual practice, but it may be very much a question, how do I bring this out into the world? How do I bring this into my work? And how do I uh, work with or respond to the, the, um, the massive suffering in the world? And you know, some of which is quite present and some of which even seems to be um, very much in the future, you know, looking at some of the crises of global warming and challenging uh, or difficult foreign policy and polarization of rich and poor and so forth. There's a lot there. And some of us may really be confused about that. Some of us may have been um, very active uh, activists, perhaps, and not known how to bring spiritual practice into those settings. Or sometimes we find in the activist world uh, almost a, um, a deep skepticism about spirituality. And for myself, uh, for a good part of my life, they, those two areas were very hard to bring together. So I think I'll read a little bit right from the beginning of the book that conveys this. By the time I was in my early 20s, I knew that I had two vocations. I wanted to dedicate myself to justice and social change, and I wanted to commit myself to exploring the depths of human consciousness, to an awakening to my and our deeper spiritual nature. Yet for a long time, I was not at all clear about how to bring these two vocations together, or even whether I could. 
It seemed as if somehow I had to choose one or the other. Over time, and with some difficulty, I came to see how they might be more and more part of a seamless whole, in which our more inner lives and our more outer lives are connected and deeply inform each other. This book is about walking a path of both inner and outer transformation. It is about coming to see that our real work is the same, whether we attend to ourselves, to our families, to our communities, or to our larger society and ecosystem. This work is to be aware and present to what is happening, responding compassionately to suffering, understanding our interdependence, and acting with grace, equanimity, and passion in difficult circumstances. I offer this book as a guide and manual, suggesting a number of basic principles and concrete practices that can help make this integration of spiritual and social transformation come alive. My first initiation into a life attuned to social transformation started while I was still a teenager during the turbulent and revelatory 1960s. I grew up in Maryland and I had seen the poverty of African-Americans firsthand in the unpaved roads and dilapidated houses and shacks a mile away from my home. As I grew older, I became more aware of the social structures and cultural attitudes that helped to perpetuate racism evident in the divisions of school districts and pressures against developing interracial friendships. I learned the details of our often imperial and militaristic foreign policy, our support of brutal dictators, and the oppression of democratic movements in other countries. On our family television set, we watched the 1968 Chicago police riot at the Democratic National Convention. Increasingly aware of the shadow of injustice, violence, and suffering, while in college at Yale University, I turned from an early preoccupation with science as a vocation to a deepening study of politics, history, and social theory. I participated in many local and national demonstrations, worked in the U.S. Congress. That's another story. <laughs> That's another. <laughs> that was interesting. That was, a, you know, as a 19-year-old, I worked in the U.S. Congress as an intern, uh, lived in Paris, studied the French student and worker movements, went to numerous political talks and meetings, and helped form a campus political group dedicated to social change. My commitment was sealed. The intention to form my life in response to suffering, oppression, injustice, and the promise of a better society felt clear and unwavering. The needs were great and obvious. How could I do anything but have this be the focus for my life. Yet in my late teens and early 20s, a second and equally, if not more compelling path opened up. At first, while still in college, the quest to understand the roots of injustice and suffering brought me to the study of what philosophy and psychology have to say about human nature and human potential. So I read Plato and Aristotle, Hegel and Marx, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, Freud and Maslow, and actually, my, um, my mother had actually been a student of Maslow. So I heard all these stories about Maslow when I was growing up, you know, and some of it about his shadow side, which was fun to hear. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and de Beauvoir, Hannah Arendt and Habermas. I read the poetry of Walt Whitman, Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder, took that long backpacking trips 
and the Appalachians and Rockies and began reading about the exploration of consciousness, meditation, Western mysticism and Asian spiritual traditions. This may evoke memories of similar similar uh, pursuits. When Ramdas uh, came to call my college, I sat with him in a small group of students at, in a chapel for hours. Something was drawing me to listen. There were just Ramdas wasn't famous then. There were just like maybe 15 people who were just hanging out with him for like three or four hours. And I just went night after night. He was there like three or four nights. Something was drawing me to listen, even as I saw myself, even though I saw myself primarily as an activist and barely understood what he was saying. (laughs) In the next few years, I was particularly drawn to learning more about Buddhist practice. I soon met a number of prominent Buddhist teachers, began a daily meditation practice that has continued to this day, and read everything I could find about meditation, consciousness research, and Buddhism. At that time, there wasn't as much. But I, so I couldn't do that today. A short time later, I started attending meditation retreats lasting one to two weeks. And basically, over about four or five years, and I was still a student, I went to about 100 days on retreat a year for about four years or so. And had an impact, as, as, as some of you know. These retreats deeply touched my heart and my most basic aspirations for my life. I felt in a new sense as if I were finally at home, knowing what I wanted to do, how I wanted to be. I was completely captivated by the simple act of paying attention to my own experience, which I'm sure many of you have been quite captivated. It's amazing, isn't it, just to pay attention to experience. I felt alive and committed as perhaps never before, just in those retreats. At times, I wanted to do nothing other than keep meditating to explore the wonders of a silent mind, to peel away all the layers of repetitive thoughts and rigid reactions. I saw more clearly the inner and often unconscious sources of cruelty and hatred, the will to dominate, the fear and greed. Yet I also felt myself continually opening to yet deeper experiences of peace, understanding and compassion. Here too, my commitment felt deep and unwavering. It seemed utterly compelling to follow this path, to awaken, to come to know the profound truth of the meaning of being alive, to transform my being, to come increasingly to manifest wisdom and compassion in my life. What would anyone else want with our short time on this earth? And so very drawn to both of those, And yet, uh, you can see it was a little bit of a setup because there was such a deep pull early in my life. And again, as as I'm sure has happened with many or most of you, that it was hard to know how to bring them together. And from, as it were, either side, the social change or social justice or social service side on the one hand and the uh, meditation side on the other, it, it seemed like it was very hard to be with one of the approaches and bring in the other side of me. When I would be with um, activists or people who I had known in college and friends who were active, very few of them were at all interested in meditation. And and a great number of them were quite skeptical and even um, dismissive, thinking that it was escapist or that I was... uh, being overly narcissistic, or you've probably heard all these, right? <laughs> from your 
from friends or family. And so and I also came to know uh, over the years, I came to know that there were a lot of historical reasons for that. It wasn't just that they were being closed minded. But if you look at the last several centuries of history, uh, in large part, a lot of the uh, movements uh, in the West, the um, Western Enlightenment in the 18th century, a lot of the um, revolutionary and radical movements in the 18th, 19th and 20th century define themselves in opposition to religion, which was seen as oppressive and uh, complicit with uh, dictators and kings and so forth. And there was this very sharp critique of religion, which you can find. You read Voltaire or many of the French uh, philosophes, or you read Marx talking about religion as the opium of the people, or the worker movements of the 19th century had a phrase, uh, neither God nor master. That was the, some of you know that phrase, uh, ni Dieu ni maître in, in French. That they were, they were basically setting, setting a, uh, setting up a critique of religion that really, I think, has stayed with us to this day. That a great number of, um, people interested in social change have continued to be quite uh, skeptical of religion, some from the point of view of um, its complicity with oppression, you know, as in, let's say, the complicity of the Catholic Church in Latin America or, you know, uh, justifying the genocide of the Native Americans on this continent. You can read that history and it's not it's not a pretty one or some of it from the point of view of science, that science has to um, question the, the dogmatism of religion and so forth. And so for many people, there was a, a um, rejection of that. And, and I came to understand historically why, that's, why it's so much the case that people interested in social change often define themselves against religion. And on the other side also, uh, at least among many of my circles, when I was practicing insight meditation, there was also a a sense among many people that if we really were serious about our spirituality, we would just meditate all the time. And there wasn't much sense of the possibility of bringing them together. You know, and we would know, I knew from reading history that there were people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, Dorothy Day, who had brought the two together. But for a lot of years, it was actually quite lonely and it was very hard to feel like I could really bring all the parts of myself either to the uh, groups interested in social change or the spiritual groups. You know, it was and so it was it was sometimes lonely, difficult. uh, And personally, I resolved this issue by coming to California. Um, I'm half joking, but uh, but actually uh, by coming to California and coming here a little bit before 1990, I met uh, I started meeting a lot of people who had that that interest to bring them together, particularly around Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I started traveling to Asia and meeting people connected with the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. Uh, made uh, several trips to. Thailand was uh, and brought uh, brought uh, helped bring over to the United States people like Sulak Sivaraksha, 
of Thailand, who's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, or uh, Dr. Aryaratni, some of you may know him, who from uh, Sri Lanka, who uh, should be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. I don't think he has been. And just these wonderful people. And I started making these trips, spending time in Asia, and meeting people who um, exemplified the bringing of these, these together, particularly from Thailand and Japan and uh, some, some of the Burmese students who uh, were working with Aung San Suu Kyi and so forth. And I started meeting people who seemed to offer a vision of bringing these together. And over the years, that was uh, really important. There was almost a sense of finding a home a place where I could, in a sense, be um, be all of myself and have all of those interests be able to show up. And I continued to work uh, over the years with that group of people. And um, as some of you know, started working with the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship Program called the BASE Program, the Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement, which has been going since 1995. And we've done probably, I don't know, uh, probably close to 30 uh, six-month training programs for people to help bridge their inner work and their outer work. Um, founded by uh, Diana Winston, uh, who's taught here a number of times and is now, she's a, a dear friend, and she's now in um, Los Angeles, having set up the, uh, or the director of the Center for Mindful Awareness at UCLA. Uh, UCLA having received a $23 million grant to study mindfulness. So things are shifting. <laughs> so, so the book really is the product of the last 15 years of work. I really having this base for make, making these connections. And in particular, the book uh, comes more directly out of a lot of work actually that Diana and I did together uh, in teaching, probably from especially from about 2000 to 2004 in which we were um, leading classes and retreats and doing writing and, and being involved with um, attempts to give some further structure to this integration of the inner and the outer work. As we, uh, as we worked further, we started to articulate a number of principles. And what you see on the handout is the, are the 10 principles which are the basis for the book. Because what the, the structure of the book is simple. There's um, an introduction, which I read from. There's a conclusion, which I probably will read from. And in between, there are 10 chapters, each clarifying one of these principles and offering a number of practices to, uh, to help make these principles real. And so I see the book as a kind of practice manual, as I, as I mentioned. It's a... Uh, it's designed, it's not, it's not overly theoretical, but it's designed for people who want to um, make those connections between the inner, inner and the outer, to be able to do so in their daily lives and have some guidance and have some concrete uh, practices that you can do uh, on an everyday basis. And so uh, these come out of the uh, teaching structure that Diana and I developed. and. The, the, the principles grew. At first we had five principles, then we had seven principles, then I think we had eight, then I think we had nine, and eventually we had ten. And um, my editors 
helping with the book, uh, said I should limit it at 10. I actually wrote about 11 principles and they, they didn't want 11 principles. They didn't they said, you know, that's not so marketable <laughs> or something. Uh, and it was kind of funny because the, the, the chapter that I cut was a chapter on transforming conflict. And that was, a, <laughs> that was a victim of the conflict between 10 and 11. So, and they're actually, since, since I've done that, I have actually found that there is, there, in, in Buddhist tradition, there, you know, there are lists of everything. There are lists of twos, threes, fours, fives, eights, fifty-twos, a hundred and eights, and so forth. And I actually found that there is a list of eleven. So, but it's too late. <laughs> I found that out too late. The list of one of the list of eleven. Some of you who practice loving kindness practice know that there are eleven benefits of metta, which um, I used to know by heart, but I don't know. At the moment, but that's the one where it says if you practice loving kindness, uh, you know, people will love you. You'll be protected by angels or devas and uh, bullets will not affect you. So it's very, very useful, <laughs> very useful practice. So maybe just a little bit about these uh, principles, and I think I'll read uh, one of them. Uh, one of the things that we found in working with these principles that I think was really crucial is we found that we could take any of these principles, like said the first principle, for example, establishing the conditions for safety, which is how I like to think about ethics. Take the ethical guidelines, um, which in Buddhist practice are especially about uh, not harming, making commitment not to harm oneself or others. Uh, through one's actions, through one's words uh, of different kinds. And what I found, what was really a fruit of writing my book was that I came to see that these principles, the principles of ethics, of non-harming, or we might say of mindfulness, or principles of working with intentions and motivation, or the principle of learning how to open to what's difficult or painful, how to open to suffering which is one of the great fruits of our practice, that we learn that suffering is much more workable than we ever thought, that we can actually, that we don't have to, as it were, head for the hills when there's pain or just flee it, but that it's actually workable and that we can, especially with training, open up to and be with suffering, our own or others, without reactivity or trying to change things. We can respond, but we don't do so out of um, some kind of rigidity or some kind of fear. And so what I found is that with any of these principles, they make a lot of sense for how we might practice individually. We can individually take the ethical precepts. We can learn in meditation practice how to be more mindful. We can work with intentions individually. We can open up to suffering and learn how to do that in meditation very concretely. And that's a big part of what we do in our practice. But we also can see how these principles can also guide us in our interactions with others, in our families, in our workplaces, in the groups we're part of, and also in our efforts to be in the larger society. So for example, uh, non-harming, which is an individual ethical precept, we can also increasingly make that a principle that guides how we are in our organizations. 
how we are in our families. And we can be much more explicit about that. One of the main ways that I brought this out in the book, there's a lot of attention to the practice of right speech or wise speech, because speech is a real speech and communication is a very crucial way to practice in our in our relationships, in our work, in our organizations. And so what does it mean not to harm others through our speech? Uh, There's a lot that we can do there. And so this principle of non-harming can also be a core way that we move into our relationships. It can guide us. It can suggest practices. It can be a common norm if we have enough people who share those values. And then when we go into, uh, let's say, the work of social service or social action on the level of a community or on a national level, non-harming becomes understood as it was with Gandhi and King as the principle of non-violence that we take non-harming as this very firm guideline for how we're going to respond to uh, social problems. And what I found is that that's the case with all of these principles. They have their individual meaning. And in a way, one of the beauties of meditation is that we learn about these principles when we meditate, when we do practice, and we, as it were, take our own being as a laboratory. But then we learn that we can bring out those principles into the rest of our lives. We can we can learn about how okay, how can I be mindful individually, but then how can I be mindful in a group? How can I be mindful in a relationship? How can I work with intentions more clearly individually, but how can I work with them on the level of an organization? How can we really be clear about what our intentions are? How can I learn how to open up to suffering individually, but how can I also work with that in an organization or a group. And in my own experience, many of the organizations I've been part of have a very hard time working with conflict or suffering. And I think uh, I think probably many of you know this. How many would say that some of your workplaces have that, that issue? <laughs> yeah, because it's, you know, there's there's that proverbial elephant in the middle of the room. You have a meeting of your organization and it's like, people don't know how to deal with interpersonal conflicts very well or how to bring the problems of an organization and use some of these same approaches. And one of the stories I tell in the book is of being uh, with Joanna Macy when she worked with a a very well-known social change organization that was having massive internal conflict. And we brought, and this was supposed to be a spiritually minded social change organization and people were at loggerheads with each other. And this is very sobering. I think many of us know those kind of situations where the groups or the people who are most supposed to exemplify these wonderful qualities, they get caught themselves or we get caught ourselves. And so, and yet there are practices that you can work with that disentangle these things. And one of the conclusions of the book that I had was that at least in Buddhist practice, we know a lot of how to work with these principles on an individual level, but we don't know very well what they look like in relationships or organizations or in terms of broader social change work. And a lot of my effort in the book was to create that kind of understanding and to share a lot of experiences of how, of what it looks like to bring these principles into these other realms, into the, into the, beyond the individual sitting in the cushion. And I think we have an urgent need for that. So in another, another way to say this was that uh, I found that the basic, 
principles and practices of our of our development of mindfulness or compassion or loving kindness could be brought out. But it takes a lot of creativity on our part to bring that out into the world, into the different parts of our lives. But I think that we have many of us, maybe most of us have this yearning not to segment our lives, not to say, "Okay, here I'm spiritual here. Forget it. Right. Has anyone experienced that (laughs) or that that tension? That's what that's what my motivation was for the book was to to see how that might be possible to make those to make those connections to um, partly to share what I've seen and worked with and partly to co- to bring forth a lot of stories. One of the joys of the book was that I interviewed about 15 people and their interviews are um, parts of their interviews are reported in the book. So I interviewed people like. Uh, Dr. Ari Ratni from Sri Lanka and Joanna Macy and my friend uh, Tikmin Duk, uh, who, who lives nearby here, uh, uh, a lot about the history in Vietnam. So as I, you know, as I um, did this, they, things started to come together. And these, I'll just mention some of these other principles and then finish just with a, a short reading from the end. Uh, I t- I've talked about the first four. The fifth principle, and each of these has a chapter. Each of these has like 20 pages, 20 or 30 pages for each of these. Uh, the fifth principle is by taking care of myself, I take care of the world. And it's about this importance of how if we're in the uh, areas of service or social change, how do we avoid burnout? How do we take care of ourselves? How do we balance that inner care with helping others? It's a very deep issue. And one of the stories I tell in the book is when Diana and I organized a whole day for Buddhist caregivers and people doing service, caregiving, social change. And at least the people who came, about two thirds of them were really close to burnout. And I tell some of their stories in the book and try to actually respond to that. The sixth, the sixth uh, principle is called not knowing, but keeping going. And that's that's a big one that that really has to do. And the particular focus there is on working with attachment to viewpoints, which is a problem that occasionally arises among social activists. I won't say more about that, but it's, it's actually it's actually really crucial. How can how can we how can you have a clear focus and 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 really have the energy that's necessary for long term commitment and not be totally self-righteous and not be totally opinionated? These are these are big issues. And the seventh is on interbeing and co-responsibility, the sense of interdependence, again, a very fundamental Guideline. And one of the themes explored in the chapter on that is particularly how do we have a different attitude towards our opponents or towards people we might see as, as so-called enemies? Uh, how do we not polarize and demonize and yet keep on really being active? These are, these, are, these are big challenges, I think, for people interested in this inner outer connection. And the eighth is about anger. Maybe that's enough said. <laughs> Anger, like burnout, is a continual issue. And so 
In this, I tell my own story of once on a retreat when I was angry for 18 hours a day for 10 days in a row. And I tell my story, and I tell, you, I tell the reader what I learned from that experience, which was a lot. You know, it's really, it's really about how anger, in a way, can be worked with and actually has often, not always, but often has insight which gets somehow enmeshed with what we might call reactivity. And the, I think the work, the, the, the spiritual work, is to disentangle the two so that we can actually take the insight and the energy from anger without taking its destructiveness and its polarizing. And that's, this is, again, very, very fundamental work. The ninth principle is about acting from equanimity, this kind of steadiness and balance, which is really necessary for the long term. And the tenth chapter, the tenth principles, maybe my favorite, it's called committed action, non-attachment to outcome. And that's another big one. And I tell a lot of stories, which I really enjoy and do a lot of interview work with some of the spiritual activists who have uh, expressed that principle. So I think I'll just end and we'll open it up. By, I'll read a little bit right from the end and then we can uh, have a conversation together. This is right from the very end of the book. So you, you will have had the beginning and the end. And the middle is up to you. Okay. To walk this path of engagement is to wake up while in the world. It is to awaken in the midst of both suffering and beauty. It is to find a home everywhere, even when there is pain and danger. Such a path seems both a full-hearted response to the great needs of our times, expressing an emerging contemporary vision and a way of realizing ancient and timeless insights. It is a path, as we have seen, in which we act so as to bring about changes but are in many ways not dependent on particular results. It is more a way of being, a way of walking, of appearing in the world, even when things are difficult. It is very much as the Czech playwright Václav Havel wrote of hope several years before the end of the communist dictatorship in his country. Hope is not prognostication. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. On this path, the success of action may be measured, as Thich Nhat Hanh writes, less by utter victory than by whether love and nonviolence have been furthered. To walk this path is thus to prepare for the long haul. The qualities necessary for the long haul are the focus of this book. Impeccable ethics, mindfulness, clarity of intentions, compassion and the ability to be present with suffering, self-knowledge and self-care, equanimity, an understanding of interdependence, among others. Yet on this path, as an individual spiritual practice, we are present for the long haul, while also remaining open to immediate insight, transformation, and change. Individually and collectively, such change sometimes comes unexpectedly and swiftly, for better or worse, as we know when considering the end of apartheid in South Africa, the breakup of the Soviet Union, or the possibility of rapid economic and ecological changes. On this path, therefore, as the Buddha taught, every moment of mindfulness matters. Every moment of kindness and compassionate action matters. When we are mindful with the nearby trees or respond skillfully, 
to a sarcastic word from a co-worker, we are stopping the war. We are transforming ourselves and the world. In walking this path, we may remember the words of the second century rabbi, Tarfan. It is not upon you to finish the work, he said. Neither are you free to desist from it. So you're not going to finish it, but you have to do it. And so I'll, I'll close by right here. The last one of the last paragraphs says there's an image in my study that inspires my own walking of the path. A photograph of the Dalai Lama seemingly walking slowly on a path through the forest, probably in India. His head is bowed forward. He extends his right arm and touches firmly the middle of a long of a large rifle. Imagine him reaching out. He touches a rifle held vertically by a soldier at alert. And as if it is as if the Dalai Lama's heart reaches out as he walks to touch the gun with kindness, to touch the violence of the world with compassion and understanding. So thank you very much. So we have some time just for any questions or reflections or um, anything, please. I have several, several things. Uh, one I'd be interested to know more specifically about uh, some of your activist things that you have done. Yeah. And, and, and what do you think about uh, protests and taking it to the streets and civil disobedience and, 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 and that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the... Um, Did everyone hear the question? It's about uh, some of the kinds of activism that I've participated in. What particularly I think about protest, disobedience, taking to the streets and so forth. Um, That's a big question. Uh, And I was personally very active at the time leading up to the uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq working with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and also right after afterwards. And I have a few thoughts uh, about this and I've talked with friends a lot. Um, basically, I think that a new kind of um, activism is necessary and is emerging. And some of you may know of the conference that was organized about a year and a half ago in Berkeley on spiritual activism, uh, connected with uh, Michael Lerner and Takoon magazine. And they, I, I was uh, there, and I, one of the presenters, and they had to turn people away from the conference. Uh, they expected three or 400. They got 1,500 before they started turning people away. And so I think there's a developing critical mass of people who are interested in doing things a different way. It hasn't manifested very much yet. But some of what we did, for example, with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, I think is helpful, you know, um, because I think uh, and, and we gathered in groups at the, some of the large demonstrations. I think the, the famous one on February 15th, 2003, that brought whatever, 15 million people or so on the planet. We should remember that. That was, and they were right. We were right, right? About, uh, we were trying to say, don't create a catastrophe. And uh, so we should remember that. And 
And yet we were, I think, um, implicitly and sometimes explicitly trying to, in a sense, bring some of these principles into that kind of action. So, for example, we gathered in small groups and we tried to work with our own individual intentions several hours before the demonstration was starting. So we tried to center ourselves so that we would um, bring our own values into that kind of activity. Some of us also uh, had long periods of meditation, particularly before the demonstrations. Still, uh, personally, I think that there's a need for something that for uh, we might call whether we call them demonstrations, I don't know, but something that brings out more the visionary and the positive aspects that are more celebratory. So I, I, you know, I've uh, talked with friends. We need somehow a whole different way of gathering. And in some ways, those of you, how many of you were at the February 15th demonstration? Quite quite a few. That had celebratory aspects, didn't it? You know, whole families were there. I went there. uh, I remember my mother and father, who were uh, around um, 80 or late 70s and 80, they marched with me there. You know, and it was it was a beautiful. It was beautiful. There were fam- you know, families with strollers, with babies there. And one of the uh, negative outcomes of the, some of the more polarizing kind of demonstrations with those people were a, a month later, they were scared away when there was a lot of the sort of the minor kind of street violence. So I think that there needs to be a, a lot of um, rethinking. Personally, I, I think that in this time of... Um, you know, post 9-11 days, I personally believe that uh, people organizing uh, demonstrations should really have should have the participants as much as possible take a vow of nonviolence. You know, that, that's uh, because otherwise it's very easily to manipulate it. So I think the, the big answer is that I think there's a different way developing in which um, those kind of meetings will be different. And of course, the the demonstrations are just one type of action and they tend to be more reactive or, um, you know, one of the, one of the models that I use in the book is a really valuable one that comes from Joanna Macy. She says that in the, the law, the, the kind of transformative work, which will really matter, there are three basic kinds of actions. The first is what she calls holding actions to prevent further damage. And that's where typically protests would, would fall. Those are important because it's important to stand up and say no at times, right? But she says that that's all that you're doing. That's very, very limited. And she says, so the second type of action is to understand the nature of the institutions and transform them, offering visions of alternative institutions. And that may be where many of us spend a good part of our time. Maybe it means thinking, okay, what kind of different educational institutions? How do we do medicine differently? How do we do healing, medicine, caring differently? How do we do hospice work differently? How do we, how do, we uh, do economics differently? And this, is, this may be the real core of the transformative work where we start to say, okay, how do we do our work life in a different way? Uh, and I'm sure many of you are quite involved with that, but that was her second And then the third aspect of action was changing the very nature of perception on a moment to moment level so that we actually see the world differently. And she says someone and one of the 
one of the beautiful uh, insights that I got from the book is that sometimes when we talk about spiritual activism or connecting um, spiritual practice with social change, we may think, oh my gosh, I've got to do everything. I should, I have to totally get together my meditation practice, but I also have to be, you know, incredible activist and I'm tired, I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> or something like that. And at times we may feel that. And for me, Joanna Macy's model makes it clear that in this sense of large scale transformation, there are all sorts of roles that are necessary. And someone, I was thinking that someone who, let's say, teaches yoga and helps people to have a different way of being with their bodies is helping with the transformation. And especially if they, if they have a sense of how their work is connected with people doing other things. That's what I think is really crucial. So, in other words, we, we don't have to do everything. And there are many, many roles. And what, what I found clearer after writing the book was that we have to uh, ask ourselves where our gifts are and where we're called to um, help participate and then to feel more clearly the connection between where our gifts go and this transformative process. So again, if I'm a teacher of yoga, I can teach that in a way which is really disconnected from other kinds of transformation, but I can also teach it in a way that I can feel very connected with the people who are trying to um, address global warming or trying to stop a war or trying to develop new uh, types of medical practices or so forth. Because I can see how, I can begin to see more how the individual transformation is linked with the collective transformation. I can teach yoga and say, okay, you have attitudes about your body which you've inherited in part from the culture. And so it's not just an individual kind of work, but it's the individual is connected with the uh, collective. Or um, I actually have a quote here, which I don't think I used in the book, but it's one of my favorites. It's from the uh, 9X uh, Yellow Pages. And it says, if it's out there, it's in here. If it's out there, it's in here. And you, this is this is exactly what my, I'm trying to say in my book. <laughs> and you could take the other side of it. If it's in here, it's out there. And so it's a long answer to your question. <laughs> please, other, please. Yeah. I couldn't help but notice during Bush's first term the uh, very large number of books that came out during those four years, just slamming him and his um, policies and ridiculing his intellect. And uh, Al Franken's book had a title, something like Lies in the Lying Liars, if you tell them, maybe that's not exactly right. It's close. <laughs> and then a lot of movies, more than before and beyond on political things. Uh, Michael Morris was the best known, and that was all in the same vein. It was really all quite vicious on the part of the liberals, and as far as I can tell, none of it did any good. It didn't change any minds. 
John Kerry actually did a little bit less well in the 2004 election than Al Gore did in 2000. And when you consider what kind of President Bush was, that's amazing. There may have been a backlash. And I think the reason for that is all these authors and filmmakers set up and the liberals were cheering up that stuff on, setting up an us versus them. So it's not going to change any conservative mind. There was no reaching out and considering that we're all the same. What do you think about that? So is everyone here okay? This question of the us versus them, self-righteous, pontificating from one side or the other. I agree with you that it's quite problematic and that there's not much, like you say, there's not much exchange going on. And there's not really a sincere effort to communicate or to have dialogue. And that actually when we, some of the chapter that didn't go in to the book was about conflict and about, and I've been very influenced by a man named Johan Galtung, who some of you know, who is actually the founder of peace studies, a Norwegian man who's in the 70s now. And he has a very beautiful understanding of how to work with conflict, which I think is very close to what we find with Thich Nhat Hanh and the way that the conflict in Vietnam was approached by that movement, by many in that movement, or some of you know the work of Marshall Rosenberg in nonviolent communication. There's, it's really to, there are a lot of things. One is to have a kind, increasingly a kind of training for people who are activists or people who are in social change so that essentially they can work with their anger and their reactivity. Because I think that what you're talking about is more or less undigested anger. It's unprocessed anger, which in a way, in Buddhist language, we would say it solidifies self. It solidifies self by defining oneself against another. And what we actually see when we look more closely, which I think we can see it more clearly with the strange reciprocal relationship between the current administration and, let's say, al-Qaeda, who both desperately need each other. Just as the Americans desperately needed the communists, the military desperately needs enemies, or they have no reason for existence. And so there are resources that we can find in Buddhist tradition. We can also find this is exactly what we find when we look at the movements of Gandhi and King, that they were attempting to, they weren't attempting to defeat their opponents. They were attempting to create a larger community in which they could eventually be friends with their opponents. And that's a very, in other words, it's a model of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the intention linked with conflict. And also there's a recognition that there is some validity, as it were, that the opponent holds. You know, that there's some insight, there's some understanding that we can find with the opponent so we don't presume that we know everything. That we actually, we ask, you know, can I learn something? Or is there some, is there some legitimate need that the opponent is expressing? 
And so this is this demands a kind of inquiry. It demands really, a, I think, again, a different kind of activism that really that has a, a, more of a depth of self-knowledge and of the very nature of having opinions and uh, working with anger and so forth. Um, so, again, a lot more to, to, that could be said there. But I uh, I hope that many of us are, you know, keep developing in these ways so that we can, I think, begin to articulate a different way to to uh, be critical. You know, I think we find this. I, I, I like a lot the work of Michael Lerner with Tacoon magazine. And I think that there's, a, you know, if you look, for example, about how he has he has books and they're expressed often in Tacoon about how to work with the, the Middle East and take a more take a, you know, there it's not so hard to see how there's some as it were, validity on either side. And there, is a lot of, there are a lot of transgressions on either side. How do you do that with, with a, uh, a conflict area? Yeah. Please. Should we use, Andrea, should we use the microphone? It's partly it also will get recorded. Along the same vein, of what you said and about the polarization. I agree. And uh, after the last presidential election, um, there were meetings. You know, I went to a move on meeting and we were talking about how did we not um, talk to, quote unquote, the other side and Mm -hmm. how this whole blue state, red state thing and the feeling that progressives were looking down on conservatives as being less bright or less informed mm-hmm. or, right. or wrong, basically. And I understand, uh, we, you know, uh, several people said uh, we need to listen more and we need to have open dialogue more. And I can understand that, and I am trying to do it more. <laughs> and I can see my, I, I can do it. With some things, like, say, an issue like um, pro-life versus women's right to choose. I could talk to a woman that was pro-life because, and I could respect that it's a very deeply felt belief. But, on the other hand, it's not so easily done with other things. And you just used the word earlier when you were talking about the the protests leading up to the Iraq war, and I went on many. Mm-hmm. And you use the expression, we were right. Yeah. Well, and as we sit here, thousands are dying yeah. in Iraq. And it's hard to to talk to somebody about that. I mean, I right. who does not hold the belief that, you know, this couldn't, couldn't be right. I mean, and you said we have to not rigidly hold on to, you know, one belief. But what if you know you are right? I mean, how do you, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, there's, um, this is where we have uh, mindfulness practice to be of help. Um, and it's interesting if you uh, if we look into uh, Buddhist practice, we see that it's actually a constant theme in Buddhist practice to be very careful about thinking that we're right about spiritual 
ideas that if you, you can actually find constantly in the text, don't get attached to this and think that it's the truth, even with Buddhism. And so I think that, um, I think that uh, to, um, to be able to look and to see where there's the, as it were, the inner energy of clinging or grasping onto something. That's not the same thing as simply knowing that this is accurate or this is the way it is. But usually the problem is, is that we add all this onto it. We demonize the other person. Mm -hmm. That's extra. In other words, can we just see clearly, you know, in Buddhist practice, the ideal is to see clearly, but not to be attached to our seeing clearly. If that, if that, so I think there's some discriminations that we have to look at here. Because it's, again, it's an internal debate within Buddhism. Do you remember this famous uh, image that the Buddha gives where he says, um, the aim of the teachings is to help with liberation. It's something to get you, it's like a boat or a raft to get you to the other shore. The person who is on the other shore and has the boat, is still carrying the boat on his or her shoulders, is confused in certain ways. And so it's a very, uh, but these, these are, I want to recognize that these are actually quite subtle and, and thorny issues. But we have, to, the key from Buddhist perspective would be to really monitor very, very closely one's own rigidity, attachment, and learn what some of the differences are between just being clear that something is this way and a uh, grasping after a belief, which, which will typically have the emotional energy to, let's say, put someone else down or to uh, have some kind of reaction. And so that's, that's the crucial thing. So we could, we can, I think we can have both a recognition of the way something has happened without being overly self-righteous. It's tricky though, isn't it? Yeah, please. Something that's been helpful for me, I think, with that is seeing how much fear I think has been a motivator for people on the yeah. other side. And so some of the Buddhist principles, as I'm understanding them more and sort of seeing how they, envisioning how they're, if, if there was more of a mindfulness for them, that they could see yeah. more clearly that they might be able to Yeah. helped me be more, um, and I still think it's right, <laughs> but it's helped me have some. More easiness with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. It seems like you found a way to take Buddhist principles and social action and join them together. Is there precedence in that um, previously, like in Buddhist time, was there any sort of joining together, or have you really done something that's separate? Or historically, have there been times where there's been a joining together for social and spiritual? In Buddhism, yeah. Of course, in many, many traditions that they've been connected. In, in, um, Buddhism, it's, um, it's a mixed story that, you know, and it's, a, it's also a long story, so I'll try to be brief. But basically, the, um, there was some understanding in the teachings of the Buddha of the reasons for poverty and for social ills. Um, and so there was some social consciousness there. There's also, there were uh, several times where the Buddha attempted to stop wars, where he intervened to try to stop wars. That there, so there is that. He wasn't just, as it were, 
away from society. There was quite an active participation, even with monks and nuns. It's it's a misunderstanding that people sometimes have that monks and nuns are totally apart from society. But if you go to Southeast Asia, you'll see even now that there's quite a connection of the society. On the other hand, the monks and nuns who take that role were enjoined not to take part in the, um, basically at that time, in the affairs of kings and queens. They were, you know, it was taken for monks and nuns, kings and queens were taken to be more dangerous than tigers and lions. And they were, they were, and so there was a kind of split between, we might say, the social and the spiritual. Over time, there are a lot of exceptions to that. Some of you know King Ashoka, who lived in the third century in India, who became a Buddhist king and brought, uh, had in many ways uh, a kind of a, a very developed welfare state, which had, which prohibited the killing of animals, prohibited capital punishment, and brought that into the society. It was much more advanced than ours in many ways. And, but historically, generally, there's been a um, somewhat of a separation. In the 20th century, that started changing, particularly in Asia, particularly in response to colonialism and war and conflict. And we have this movement that we have come to call socially engaged Buddhism, developed in Sri Lanka, in Vietnam, in Thailand, in Burma, and so forth, in the 20th century. And they're also, on the other side of it, in, in Japan, there was a kind of right-wing engaged Buddhism that uh, in the 20th century, there were uh, the Zen establishment in a good part of the first half of the 20th century supported militarism and the war effort in Japan. And there's some very uh, shocking books on that you can read. There's one, the, I had to mention one book, it's called Zen at War. And you find, you find uh, Zen teachers um, um, speaking on be- of the importance of going to war. Many of them after World War II have apologized for that, but, but that is in the history. So there is, I think that there is something that's new that's happening with this. I think in some ways it's a kind of meeting of Buddhist practice and Western social justice traditions. And so I think there's that, and there are roots in Buddhism, but the, a lot of the energy I think is coming from uh, Western traditions that have their a lot of their roots in Jewish and Christian and, and Muslim tradition approaches. Yeah. You take one more question and then we'll then we'll move to the book signing. <laughs> Yeah. I've been listening to uh, recordings of some of Martin Luther King's speeches. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that strikes me about his speeches is that he advocates nonviolence, but his speaking style is not exactly nonviolent in the sense that it's very forceful. Yeah. He shouts, he's angry, and it seems to me that maybe part of what Buddhists get caught up in is that they're trying so hard to be, you know, gentle and calm and all that. But what I was hearing is how that would be how he'd connect with the audience, Mm -hmm. that he was able to voice their anger and their frustration, but make it very clear about the response needed to be nonviolent. And um, I'm wondering what you have seen in terms of, you know, is, is that part of what's hanging up 
the Buddhist response is that they're trying to be so gentle and calm that they don't connect to people who are really angry or hurt? It's a, it's a great question. Um, and there, there's a lot there. And um, in the book, I actually devoted a lot of attention to themes related to your question. Uh, there, you know, there's a whole chapter on anger. And I believe that um, there is a lot of confusion among Buddhists about anger. And I, I would, I'm not sure I would say, let me, let me back up. I talked a little bit earlier about how working with anger is a central issue for any, as it were, socially engaged spiritual response. That how we, how we work with the anger that, that often is there when we sense something has been unjust or unfair or there is suffering occurring is a really big uh, theme, a really big issue. And the key, as I was mentioning, as much as I've explored it, is about opening to the anger in ways that transform the anger but preserve in some way the energy and the insight that often is connected with anger. We can think of King. There was a lot of energy in, the, in observing injustice, seeing it, a lot of insight there. King actually explicitly talked about the, the movement that he was part of hinges on the constructive transformation of anger. He used that kind of language. And so I would, I would uh, look for some discriminations between a kind of anger that's reactive and what the transformed energy of anger looks like. I would, and I would suggest that some of what we hear in King's speeches may be the latter, that it may not be a simple kind of reactive anger. I don't think so. I think, yeah, there's a kind of passion there and there's something there that is um, is very energetic, and it does have you know it does have a lot to do with the style and language of the Southern African American Church and so forth. But but still, my sense is that he is channeling that energy, but he's not necessarily polarizing himself against the people who are, as it were, the oppressors. And so there's some really key differences between the typical reactive structure of, let's say, untransformed anger. And so that's, that's a really uh, crucial point. I do believe that that's very confusing for Buddhists. And I actually, the chapter in anger was one of the favorite chapters. I wrote about twice as much as actually got published and had a, a long, I, have to, I actually had to do some historical work because one of my sections is called a brief history of Western ambivalence towards anger. <laughs> because I think that there's, there's considerable ambivalence. You can find it in the roots of Christianity. You can find it in, in Judaism. In the Old Testament, God gets angry, right? God gets, and the prophets get really angry. And uh, Jesus gets angry with the money changers. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says that, uh, that uh, anger at injustice is a different kind, is not one of the seven deadly sins. So there's, there are a lot of, there are a lot, <laughs> you know, because anger originally was one of the seven deadly sins, right? You know, and so there's a lot of, huh? Well, I, I would see it, I would see it less as a loophole 
then more is a recognition that it's a really important energy and that when worked through, something different happens. And I, and I guess I think that there are a lot of confusions among Buddhists. Some of it has to do with the translation because uh, basically the word, the Asian words that we translate as anger don't have the same connotations as the Western cognates of anger in English and in other languages. The connotations are very different than the connotations of the words that we translate as anger, where, where you can read in Buddhist text, you know, um, you know, anger is the biggest problem in the world. If you read the text or you read Shanti Deva, some of you know the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. He says, one moment of anger in the mind of a Bodhisattva can set us back eons. <laughs> You know, or something. It's a very strong statement. I think I have it quoted in here. And what we actually find when we look closely at the words is that the connotations are much closer to hatred, which makes some sense of why they're saying what they say. The Dalai Lama was informed about some of these uh, verbal distinctions. He said we should never translate any of the Asian words which are understood as defilements or afflictions. They're sometimes translated uh, kalesas in the, in the Pali and Sanskrit. We should never translate that uh, by anger because anger, and the Greeks called anger the moral emotion because it was especially an emotion that helped people know about violations of norms and boundaries. And so there's incredible confusion about this, all this. And so, and so I could say more. I could come and a half day on anger <laughs> and it's really powerful but I think that it's particularly confusing for Buddhists because adding to all that confusion is the fact that many of us were raised to be nice people and I'm, I'm, I'm serious do you know what I mean that we that we find safety in not being angry and there's some ways that I think it actually is uh, problematic that we that we say, oh, if I'm nice, I don't have to deal with my anger. Oh, Buddhism says being not angry is being on the way to awakening. Oh, how convenient. <laughs> Do you get it? <laughs> In other words, anger is part of our shadow and the language of Buddhism seems to justify that. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of confusion there. But anger has a way of losing up and bubbling up in all kinds of ways. It does. <laughs> that, that made it even more negative than... Yeah, I think it's, it's a very... Uh, it's a central area to do very uh, dedicated, transformative work on. And that's, we have tools for that from, from Buddhism and from other approaches and traditions. But I think it's a real... I, I would say this, plus issues of burnout, plus issues of... How do we relate to our opponents? These are like the really uh, major charged issues for people who are wanting to connect the inner and the outer work and really, really central to uh, give a lot of attention to it. Um, so it was a great question, really. And we could you feel the energies up a little bit. <laughs> so... Um, no, you saying that 
Buddhism, as it was practiced 2,500 years ago in the monasteries of the forests of Asia, didn't have a concept of social action, anything like what we have. And so, yes, I think that, uh, but I, I think Buddhism is something that evolves. You can find a different sense of social action in other Buddhist approaches. You can find it in Ashoka, as I was mentioning. But the, uh, a lot of this, I think, is about um, how do we understand how this tradition evolves in this culture? Or how do, we li- how do we live our lives in ways that in which we can really respond to the suffering of the times? So um, I don't think Buddhism is something that's static. And so it's... Uh, but if you were saying, well, do I find concepts of social justice, social change, and social action uh, in the uh, Buddhism of the monasteries of the forests of Asia, you don't find it in the same way. But you find elements of it, and you find the ethics. You find the ethics of non-harming. You do find the Buddha trying to stop wars. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a really a need for a lot of translation work, but we can have a lot of the roots of this connection we can find in Buddhist tradition. We have the model of the Bodhisattva who is interested in connecting, uh, responding to suffering with inner work. So I could say more there, but let me just uh, take about 30 seconds or a minute of quiet time and then we'll end. And anyone who's interested could continue the conversation at that table. So just uh, a short period of quiet. Just inviting whatever was helpful from the evening to be present for us. And any intentions which we take out of the evening. So we close in a very traditional way by offering the fruits of our time together, whatever insights or energy or mm, positive intentions have been developed. We offer that outward for the benefit of all beings, for the transformation of suffering, for the healing and transformation and freedom of all beings. Thank you. Thank you for your great questions and great attention. Thank you.